surprise. GM fell to $25. That would have been a loss of two-thirds of the money I invested. And since, as a rule number one investor, I focus and do not invest in more than a few businesses at any one time, a loss like that would punch a big hole in the rest of my investing returns. Thus, children, we play by the rule or we get spanked. Point. Never, ever pay the sticker price or more for a business. When to buy. Once we have our sticker price and our MOS, we know what price we should pay for the business. It's a wonderful business, and when it becomes available at an attractive MOS price, we are prepared to buy it. There are a few more considerations we have to deal with, however, before we actually start investing our hard-earned money. Knowing when to get in is one consideration, but we should also know what price we'd sell it for. Read on. Note. A question that comes my way a lot goes something like this. GM pays a dividend, so why can't I consider that a positive for GM? especially when you consider I get to add that dividend to my ROI and let it all grow and compound together. Here's how I answer this question. Notice how I didn't include the dividend in the ROI calculations for GM. A friend of mine just had a birthday party. I was asked to pick up her friend, an 83-year-old woman, and bring her to the party. When I arrived at the nursing home, she took my arm and steadied herself on the way to my car. On the way over to the party, we talked about investing. She believes in finding great businesses that pay a consistent dividend. GM is one she owns. A lot of investors buy stocks, not businesses, and expect a consistent dividend return from the stock and the heck with anything else. That's why GM borrows money to pay dividends, to keep up the charade that everything is fine. And thus an 83-year-old woman continues to believe the illusion that everything must be fine with GM since it wouldn't be paying a dividend otherwise. I just smiled, nodded, and drove her to the party, where she had a great time. Just remember what I said earlier in this book. Rule number one isn't about dividends one way or the other. Rule number one investors can't be suckered or paid off. We're about owning something wonderful, and we're about buying that wonderful business at an attractive price. If the wonderful business pays dividends or reinvests the surplus, either way is good for us. But it has to be wonderful, and it has to be at an attractive price. Period. Chapter 10 Know the right time to sell. The right time to sell a company is never. Warren Buffett, 1930 to present. As Mr. Buffett says, the right time to sell a business, in theory, is never. So the perfect business to buy is one we never have to sell. That's our ultimate objective to buy a company so wonderful at a price so attractive that we never, ever sell it. It continues to make us rich. That, my friends, is rule number one nirvana. 
Approaching rule number one methodology with this idea in mind is part of the process, just as is buying a business as if you were going to buy the whole thing. You want to assume you're never going to sell your wonderful company. And while it's true you can't realize a gain until you sell, and your riches may all be on paper, that's okay. The conceptual exercise of thinking you're never going to sell is an important one for the rule number one investor. It prevents you from falling into the trap of being an ordinary speculator in the market. In other words, it reinforces the tenets of rule number one. Of course, it doesn't often happen that you can hold on to a wonderful company forever. Not all companies stay wonderful. Even Mr. Buffett sells businesses from time to time. Over the years, he's bought and sold hundreds. He may buy with the hope of never selling, but since he's a rule number one investor, he probably also buys with a margin of safety and therefore a way out without losing money if things don't go well. The businesses he buys stock in and actually holds forever are few and far between. Even Coke, a business he said he'd never sell, led him to regret that he didn't sell it in 1999 when Mr. Market was pricing Coke insanely high. But still, the goal of every rule number one investment is to never sell. Don't lose sight of this concept, since it's part of the mindset you must adopt for purposes of finding and buying wonderful companies. Quote, Our huge positions add to the difficulty of our nimbly dancing in and out of holdings. Nevertheless, I can be properly criticized for merely clucking about nosebleed valuations during the bubble rather than acting on my views. Though I said at the time that certain of the stocks we held were priced ahead of themselves, I underestimated just how severe the overvaluation was. I talked when I should have walked. Unquote. Warren Buffett's Chairman's Letter, February 28, 2005 The Incredible Advantage of Never Selling There is a reason that the richest people in the world are business owners. Businesses grow our money much faster than anything else because we don't have to find a new place to reinvest our annual gains. If we're making 15% per year returns from a wonderful company, where else can we get that rate of return? What better place to put our money than a company that returns to us 15% or more a year? There is no better alternative, which is why leaving the gains from our investment in our investment, rather than cashing out, is critical to becoming very, very rich. This is true whether we're retired or not. Being able to reinvest our annual gains and compound money continually at 15% or more a year in a wonderful company is incredibly important to a rule number one investor. It means that, theoretically at least, we have to pick only a few wonderful businesses, buy them at attractive prices, and we're done. We're certain to get rich. The money pouring in will do all the work for us from then on. Keep in mind that our definition of a wonderful business includes the notion of moat, which further includes the notion of predictability. If the business becomes unpredictable, perhaps the moat has been breached. In that case, the business, by rule number one definition, is no longer wonderful, and we sell it. Note. 
It's true the richest people in the world got their money, almost without exception, from businesses that grew their fortunes. On Forbes's 2004 list of the richest people in the world, the first real estate mogul doesn't make his appearance until number 34, and the next one, Donald Trump, doesn't show up until number 78. Everybody else on the list grew their money from businesses. The top ten built their fortunes in such areas as technology, Microsoft and Oracle, numbers one and five respectively, mass retail, Walmart, numbers six through ten, grocery, number three, oil and gas, number four, investing, Warren Buffett at number two, etc. The power of a business to compound money is, in the words of Albert Einstein, who was especially referring to compounding rates of return, the most powerful force in the world. Let's say, for example, we buy Apollo Group in 2000 at an attractive price, in this case, $10 per share. By the end of 2004, Apollo Group had grown its earnings by well over 300%, and we hadn't taken any of the money out, i.e. our gains, to use elsewhere. We left it all in the business and continued to compound our money at well over 15% per year. By 2020, if Apollo can keep the growth going, our reinvested earnings will have grown 7,000%. At that point... Let's say we decide to retire. The year is 2020, and assuming Apollo Group is still as consistent and predictable as ever, we can sell the business we paid $10 per share for in 2000 for about $1,000 per share, a 25% per year rate of return. If we had put $10,000 into Apollo Group in 2000, we now have $1 million. $1 million. Is it better to cash out and take that $1 million to live on in retirement? Or should we do something else with that money? What's the best, most secure way to retire? If, at any time along this 20-year investment journey, Apollo becomes less than wonderful or massively overpriced, we'll sell it and stay out of it until the situation is rectified. Our money, in that case, will be invested in some other wonderful business that we can find at an attractive price. So, although I write about staying for 20 years in one business, in reality, few businesses make it 20 years without becoming unwonderful along the way. Nonetheless, for a rule number one investor, the compounding numbers work out the same whether we're talking about one business for 20 years or serial businesses for 20 years. Note, can a stock price really go from $10 a share to $1,000? Businesses rarely allow their stock prices to run up to $1,000 per share. Berkshire Hathaway, The Washington Post, and a few others do, but not many, because the higher stock price makes it more difficult to find buyers. Most people are intimidated by the thought of paying that much for a single share. Berkshire Hathaway Class A shares are currently priced at over $80,000 per share. Mr. Buffett leaves it up there intentionally to help prevent a lot of trading in the stock. What most businesses do to keep their stock prices south of $80 is, at a point when the price is soaring to triple digits and beyond, give every shareholder two new shares for each original share. 
the value of each new share being half the original. For example, if the stock price is $100 a share, and you give me two $50 shares to replace my one $100 share, I've still got $100 worth of stock, but now I have two shares trading at $50 each. This is called a stock split, and it's done all the time. So, ten years from now, we might not have one share worth $1,000. More likely, for each of our original shares, we'll have 50 shares worth $20 each for a total of $1,000 of value for our original $10 investment. If 25% average annual returns for 20 years sounds like a high rate of return, get used to it. It's Mr. Buffett's average for the last 50 years, and we, as small rule number one investors, have major advantages over Mr. Buffett that more than make up for our lack of genius. While we shouldn't expect 25% a year for 20 years, don't count on not getting it. It can happen to you, and you'd hate to let yourself down. Need some proof? Consider the following true stories of wonderful companies whose stock prices, per share, split-adjusted, exploded. Walgreens, 50 cents to $48, 1978 to 2002. Walmart, 20 cents to $64, 1975 to 2000. Dell, 4 cents to $42, 1989 to 1999. Amgen, 10 cents to $72, 1985 to 2001. These and more all grew at 25% a year average for 20 years or longer. In the last 10 years, Apollo Group, $1 to $80, Whole Foods, $6 to $120, Toll Brothers, $4 to $48, Urban Outfitters, $1 to $50, Chico's Fashions, $0.20 cents to $35, Bed Bath & Beyond, $3 to $46, and more have done 25% or better. $10,000 invested in any or all of the first group, from Walgreens to Amgen, is now worth well over $1 million. $10,000 invested in any or all of the second group, from Apollo to Bed Bath & Beyond, is now worth over $100,000 through one of the worst stock drops in history. Two Ways to Retire We can go about this retirement in two different ways. We can sell all of our stock in Apollo worth about $1 million, and use that to finish paying off our mortgages, traveling the world, and visiting our children. Or we can keep our money in the company and skim what we need from the top to live during retirement. Which way is better? Scenario 1. Sell all of Apollo. When we sell the stock, we'll pay long-term gains tax on the million and end up with roughly $850,000 then I suppose we might invest in a government bond at 4%, and we'll have $30,000 per year after tax to live on. This is how someone not tuned in to rule number one would retire. Since we play by the rule, we know we can invest our retirement money without fearing loss, 
So why would we sell 100% of Apollo Group as long as it continues to be wonderful and priced by Mr. Market at or below sticker? Why not keep the million dollars growing at 15% and live on the annual gains? Apollo's stock is going to go up with its equity growth, and its equity is going up at 15% a year. So at the end of the year, the value of our Apollo Group stock will, in theory at least, have appreciated 15%. Where else can you get 15% or more? Certainly not in a government bond. Obviously, this assumes Mr. Market is rational, which, as we know, he isn't all the time. In the real market in any given year, the price of Apollo stock could be far above or below the 15% increase we expected. For a retiree, those ups and downs could create an emotional roller coaster. I'll show you how to solve that problem in the next chapter. For now, however, let's assume Mr. Market does get it right enough for this example to be true on average. Scenario 2. Sell only what we need for living and keep Apollo compounding our money. At the beginning of that year, we had $1 million of Apollo Group stock and it continued to grow at 15%. So by the end of the year, we have $1.15 million of Apollo Group stock. If we sell just those gains from that year, or $150,000 worth of stock, and pay long-term gains tax of 15%, we have $128,000 after tax to live on. Two scenarios set up with the same amount of money yet two entirely different outcomes. With the exact same amount of retirement money at the start, $1 million in stock, a rule number one investor is living on $10,000 a month, while another millionaire who cashed out of Apollo and bought a T-note is trying to get by on $2,500 a month. This little compounding example highlights one of the great and wonderful benefits of rule number one investing. After a few years, our wonderful rule number one business is compounding all of our money, including our gains, over the years at such an enormous rate that, even starting with a small amount of capital, we'll be able to live very well off our investments in a very short time. Think of the advantage that gives us over owning a real estate apartment complex. After I pay all the management costs of the apartment complex the maintenance costs, insurance, and the mortgage, the money I have left over is mine to spend, the equivalent of earnings in a business. But I can't reinvest this money in this apartment complex very easily. I have to go find another real estate investment that's just as good as the first one. And I have to do that with all the gains I'm making. On the other hand, a wonderful business will reinvest my earnings for me and give me back an ever-growing return on my investment. Can you imagine just sitting there retired and watching a $10,000 investment you made 20 years ago handing you $150,000 per year with zero work on your part? Nirvana in retirement. In a perfect world, we might find nirvana, but in this world, businesses tend to have problems reinvesting our money at a high ROIC. As competitors learn how to cross the moat, entire industries get wiped out by new inventions, and wars and economic crises can crash the market for long stretches.
And so nirvana, with just one wonderful business, is a hoped-for but seldom-achieved ideal. What do we do? The answer? Sell. Yes, sometimes it's time to sell. But when? When to sell. There are two times to sell. One, when the business has ceased to be wonderful. Two, when the market price is above the sticker price. Number one, the business has ceased to be wonderful. A business is wonderful in rule number one terms because we want to own it, we understand it, it has a consistent, predictably durable moat, and level five management. Wonderful businesses, by definition, tend to stay wonderful. In other words, something big has to change, or they'll just keep being wonderful forever. There are only two reasons a business can change from wonderful to not wonderful. One, an outside attack, and or two, an inside traitor. The outside attack comes from a competitor who's crossed the moat and is tearing down the castle. That can happen because either our management team didn't defend the moat or a competitor made our products obsolete. Similar to what happened to the typewriter when word processing emerged. Similar to when railroads couldn't compete with airplanes. Similar to when DVDs wiped out video, CDs wiped out records and tapes, and online downloading wiped out brick-and-mortar music stores. Successful outside attacks happen all the time, which is one of the big reasons we have to understand the business we own and why we insist on a durable moat, a moat that, by definition, is easily defended against an outside attack. The inside traitor is less obvious. The inside traitor is a CEO who's gone from being on your side to being on his side. This is common because CEOs of successful businesses often love growing the business more than they love doing what's right for the owners. In the real world, over time, the cost of growth goes up for every business. The CEO then can't reinvest our earnings into the business with the same nice ROIC we've been getting. He pays for more advertising, but not as many new customers come to the store. At this point, as owners... We'd prefer he'd give us the money. If he'd just do that, we'd be happy, because we can invest it in a different, faster-growing business. But our CEO might not see it that way. Instead, he might think, Hey, how great would it be to take that excess cash and, instead of giving it back to the owners, use it to buy up all these other businesses? For a lot of CEOs, Buying businesses and building an empire are much more fun than playing golf. We should have been given that excess cash to reinvest in a business that can grow at 15% a year. Instead, our inside traitor CEO ripped us off to look good to his buddies. The outside attack and inside traitor problems both show up in the big five numbers. If the big five are no longer good enough to warrant holding on to the business, sell it. Number two, the market price is above the sticker price. This is a problem we love to have. 
we buy a business like Apollo Group in 2000, when Mr. Market is in love with technology and underpricing simple educational businesses. We get a 75% discount off sticker. We're set. The business continues its growing ways, and finally Mr. Market begins to realize he made a mistake in pricing this one. So the price starts going up and up and up and up. Within four years, the price of the company is above its sticker. Now what? The company is still growing really well. Sales, EPS, equity, and cash are all growing steadily. ROIC is still high and steady. Shouldn't we just keep it? Isn't the right amount of time to hold a stock forever? Apollo Group continues to be a good example, so let's refer to it. In 2004, Apollo Group was priced at $95 per share. We bought it at $10 four years earlier, when the sticker price was $40 and the MOS was $20. What is its sticker now, in 2004? It's been growing, so we have to recalculate sticker. Again, like baking a cake, we have to pull together the ingredients. Here are the ingredients we need to collect from a financial website. EPS 2004 TTM, trailing 12 months, 90 cents. Analysts' average estimated EPS growth rate, 23%. Historical P.E., 62. Market price, $95. Now that we have the ingredients we need, we finalize the EPS growth rate by looking at the big five numbers. When I do that, I see that the analyst's estimate of 23% growth looks good. That means three doubles in 10 years, 72 divided by 23. Since the EPS is at 90 cents, three doubles means it'll be $7 or so in 10 years. 90 cents to $1.80, $1.80 to $3.60, $3.60 to $7.20. The historical P.E. is way high, so we'll use the rule number one default P.E. of two times the growth rate. Two times 23 equals 46. This makes the future price $320 or so. And since sticker price is always one quarter of future price, a mathematical relationship dictated by the 10-year interval involved and our desire to reap a 15% a year return, sticker price is $80. That's the quick and rough way to do this. Obviously, if we want to get this as accurate as we can, we can do the calculations with an Excel spreadsheet or use the calculators on my website built for exactly these problems. But lots of really good investors don't use computers to figure this math out. It's become routine and automatic for them, and they can quickly eye a batch of raw numbers and know instantly what they mean. To paraphrase Warren Buffett, if it doesn't jump out at you that this is a super deal, then it's too close to call. Note, are you noticing that these Apollo numbers are the same numbers we saw for Harley-Davidson in 2000? Just a coincidence? Not really. Fast-growing businesses can hover around the 24% range, and by splitting their stock over and over, they keep their EPS down in the $1 range. Lots of businesses do this, and because they do it, these numbers become a kind of comfort zone for big investors. On my website, you can calculate Apollo's future price and today's sticker and MOS 
by performing the following steps. 1. Open the sticker and MOS calculator. 2. In the box labeled EPS, input 90 cents. 3. In the box labeled Growth Rate, input 23%. 4. In the box labeled PE, input 46, since double the growth rate is less than the historical PE. 5. In the box labeled Years, leave 10. 6. In the box labeled Minimum Acceptable Rate of Return, leave 15%. 7. Click Calculate, and we get the following results. A. Future value per share in 10 years is $360. B. Sticker price today is $89. C. MOS price today is $45. The sticker price today is $89, but the market price today is $95. Today, of course, being 2004. Apollo Group is priced above the sticker and way, way above the MOS price of $45. Often, especially in this market, about the time a business is priced close to its sticker is when the big guys, the institutional investors, start to take their profits off the table. They can do these calculations too, you know. All it takes for them to run for the hills is some problem. A negative analyst report, bad press, government regulators taking a look, bad sector news, a missed projection, Or maybe they're just in a funky mood and start taking profits off the table. Don't attempt to understand their thinking or why they decide to sell. It could be anything or nothing at all. And then, like lemmings off a cliff, the other institutional guys start selling too. For us, this means that from this point onward, we're looking for a better opportunity for our money. One with a lot bigger MOS. On the other hand, it's a shame to have done all that work getting to know Apollo Group and then say goodbye. Instead, after we sell it, we're going to keep Apollo Group on our watch list. If it becomes attractive again in price and still meets all four M's, we may buy it again. Reminder A watch list is just a group of stocks we're watching. When Mr. Market prices a business on our watch list, completing our 4M criteria, we make a move and buy it. And if we have to sell that wonderful company at a later date, we put it back on our watch list, where, assuming it continues to pass our 4M test, we can buy it back again when the price is right. If the price goes down to where we get a big MOS again, we can buy Apollo back and ride it up. In fact, the reason I'm using Apollo Group as an example is that its price trajectory permitted exactly that. The stock price dropped from $95 in mid-2004 to $65 by November 2004. But should we have bought it back again at that price? Remember that the MOS price we calculated for Apollo was $45. This is a key question. When should we buy back a stock that's below the sticker price? If we need a 50% margin of safety to buy it in the first place, can we rebuy with a smaller, narrower MOS? The answer to that question is yes. The one exception to the MOS price. All things being equal between two businesses, 
I wouldn't choose to buy a business with a 30% margin of safety if I can buy just as good a business with a 50% margin of safety. Obviously, I buy the one where my money is going to get the biggest compounded rate of return. But at the moment Apollo is available with a 30% MOS, what other businesses are available that meet the four M's? In the real world, there aren't a lot of wonderful businesses out there selling with a 50% margin of safety that really do have meaning to me, whose management I love, and that have a wide moat. It's possible that for the whole time Apollo is available at a 30% discount, there may be nothing else I can buy on my watch list that's as good a deal as that. Once you've been buying and selling a business for some time, you'll find that you start to become much more comfortable investing in it than in something new you don't know as well. I find myself coming back to the same businesses over and over again when Mr. Market prices them below their value. Apollo Group, Chico's Fashions, Whole Foods, Harley-Davidson, and a handful of others are amazing businesses, best of class in every way, and Mr. Market is capable of pricing them at some kind of margin of safety whenever there's a hiccup in their upward growth. As rule number one investors, we gotta love that. So answer this. Isn't it better to have our money working in wonderful businesses that we understand, even if the margin of safety isn't as big as we'd like? Answer, yes. But only if we bought in originally with the full 50% MOS. If we did that, then in effect, we're buying back in with gains we've made from the business price moving upward. That gives us the extra cushion. Don't use this exception to the MOS requirement as an excuse to buy businesses that don't have the full MOS. You can get in trouble doing that. Having said all that, I'll give you a guideline I use for rebuying a business. Once we've gotten in at a great discount, our true MOS at 50% off sticker, once we've been proven right and it's gone up to its sticker price, once we're buying the business back with gains from previous purchases, I'll buy back in when it drops to 20% below the sticker price. Great businesses have 20% price changes all the time. Harley-Davidson got up to its sticker of $50 by January 2002, so I was out. Then it dropped more than 20% below sticker by January 2003. Time to play with Harley again. Then, by 2004, it ran up to $62, right at the sticker price, and I got out again. And then it dropped to $45, more than 20% below sticker again. Time to get into Harley yet again. And as of this writing, Harley is at $52. I'll keep getting in as long as Harley is making reasonable progress, 15% or better annualized rate of return as always, toward the sticker. The actual progress Harley's made using this approach has been almost 40% per year. That's what can happen when you find a great rule number one business and know when to get in and when to get out. If you're thinking that the tax consequences of getting in and out are something to consider, hold that thought. I'll delve into the tax issue later and prove to you that fearing Mr. Taxman shouldn't dissuade a rule number one investor from jumping in and out of a business. Actually, 
This in-and-out activity is pretty much a self-correcting process. As our wonderful business is available at a less and less attractive price, other wonderful businesses are going to become available, and we're naturally going to shift our capital toward the highest potential rate of return with the lowest potential risk. Reminder. If you're finding yourself buying back into a business you previously owned, but are now accepting it with a lower MOS price, consider this a wake-up call to start searching for better bargains on businesses you love. Once you sell a company that's not so wonderful anymore, don't obsess over it as it sits on your watch list, hoping you can buy it back as soon as possible. Make an active effort to find other wonderful companies that pass the 4M test. Do your homework. Don't get lazy. And most important, don't lose sight of being a true rule number one investor. Get back in the game so you can make money work for you. Eliminating Doubt This method of selling when the market price reaches our sticker price and then buying back in at a lower price, but potentially with a narrower margin of safety, does require that we have faith in our ability to nail the correct sticker price from the start. And, lacking faith, we can easily start to guess, hope, and wish. Is this business really priced at sticker price? Are the analysts right about the growth rate? What if I change the P.E. just a little? Should I wait a little longer and hold on to this business? In other words, like Mr. Market, we start to get emotional which is bad for a rule number one investor. We have to have a better way of confirming our decisions and feeling comfortable about our moves. In the next chapter, we'll learn to use tools that take the emotion out of investing, protecting us from our own inevitable mistakes. Chapter 11. Grab the Stick Chance fights ever on the side of the prudent. Euripides, 484-406 B.C. Even after doing a good job of finding a business that passes the 4M test, one that has meaning to us, that has a wide moat, that has great management, and that you can buy today with a big margin of safety, is it still possible we could make a mistake and violate the rule? Of course. And even if we did everything totally right and didn't make a mistake, couldn't the stock price go down in the short run and cause us to lose money? If those thoughts didn't occur to you already, believe me, when you start to do rule number one investing with real money, you'll hear in your head, Did I make a mistake? And what do I do if this business goes down in price? We need a solution to this problem. Solution number one. Pretend. You bought a business and the price started going down the day after you bought it. And it is still going down with no sign of relenting. In case you've never experienced this, investors who have gone through it tell me this is not fun. Okay, I admit it. I've goofed and experienced this too. One way to deal with this is to say to yourself that even though the stock has gone down in price, as long as you don't sell it, you haven't really lost any money. In other words, just pretend you're not losing money and therefore not violating rule number one, 
Right? Wrong. Big time wrong. Escaping from reality wrong. Imagine you're right about the business and its value, but in spite of your brilliance, Mr. Market has managed to get even more depressed about the future, and now the company's stock is selling for less than what you paid last month. You say to yourself that you haven't lost money because you haven't sold it. But if you went to your banker and showed him your assets to get a loan, and you said this business is worth what you paid for it last month, your banker would laugh at you and throw you out. He'd tell you your business is worth what Mr. Market is paying for it that day, not what you think it's worth or what you wish it were worth or what you paid for it last month. If Mr. Market is paying less than what you paid for it, as far as your banker is concerned, you lost money and your net worth has gone down. Therefore, neither you nor I can pretend we're not losing money if the market is telling us our business is worth less than what we paid for it. Because losing money, even in the short term, is a gross violation of the rule. We must solve this problem some other way than just pretending it doesn't exist. Solution number two, make up the difference. The second way to deal with this problem is the way Warren Buffett does it. He doesn't pretend he isn't losing money. Instead, he fills the hole by making more money in some other short-term investment than he lost in the rule number one business. This is a good trick if you can do it, and Mr. Buffett is smart enough that he can. He's not only one of the world's best long-term investors, he's also one of the world's best short-term investors. He's made billions in short-term investments like bonds, silver, currencies, and takeover arbitrage. Can you and I do that? Takeovers and commodity and currency trading are actually a lot of fun, and we certainly can do those, but that's the subject of another book. I'm assuming not every student of rule number one wants to get into this enough to be out there in the market as a trader. On the other hand, I'm also assuming that every single reader wants to not lose money. Since making up the difference with very clever short-term trading is a more advanced technique and requires more time and more training, we need another possibility. Solution number three. Don't lose money in the first place. There's a story about a student who'd been training in a monastery for many years to be a monk. One day, his teacher came into his cell carrying a gnarly walking cane and said, You've done well, my son. You have only one last test to pass. I will return in one day. If you pass the test, you will become a monk and join our order as a brother. If you fail it, I'll beat you senseless with this stick. Before the student could ask what the test was, the monk walked out and locked the door. The student had nothing to do but sit in his cell and ponder his final test. The next day, his teacher returned carrying the stick and said, Well? And before he could say another word, the student leaped to his feet and grabbed the stick. The teacher smiled and said, Welcome, brother. Our third choice is to grab the stick. Grabbing the stick At this point, you are like the student in the story. You've learned quite a lot about what makes a business wonderful. 
Still, no matter how much you know, Mr. Market can still beat you with a stick by making your wonderful company's price go down. Now I'm going to show you how to take away Mr. Market's stick. Until just a few years ago, this was not possible without a great deal of work. Today, the small and insignificant investor has an enormous advantage over any of the big investors in the market. And I'm going to show you how to exploit that advantage to take away Mr. Market's ability to beat us by dropping the price of our business. But first, you have to understand what makes a stock price go up and down. When I ask people, what makes a stock price go up? They tell me stocks go up because interest rates go down. Or stocks go up because the company has higher earnings. Or stocks go up because they hired a better CEO. Or stocks go up because the dollar went up against the yen. Or a million other reasons, all of which are wrong. Stocks go up for one reason and only one. They go up only because more money wants to buy than wants to sell. As I stated clearly in Chapter 1, today, of the $17 trillion in the United States stock markets, over $14 trillion is from pension funds, banking funds, insurance funds, and mutual funds. As a group, these are known as the institutional funds. They're usually quite large typically investing over $1 billion. So, as a group, they are Mr. Market. They control the price of any stock they're investing in. If they put more money in, the price goes up. If they take their money out, the price goes down. What all this means for you is that even a business that's on sale for 50% below its sticker price could go down some more in the short run if the fund managers keep selling it, even though, rationally, it shouldn't. Please remember that Mr. Market isn't rational all the time. As Ben Graham taught us, in the long run, the market is a weighing machine, giving us the correct weight price for every company. But in the short run, the market is a voting machine that's fully capable of casting votes based on emotion and not reason, giving us the wrong voting result, price, for any company. What's more, institutional fund managers act nothing like owners of companies. They don't buy with the long-term success of businesses in mind. They only really care about the short-term success of their businesses, how much they can make in the current quarter. The reason Mr. Buffett must take short-term losses in his long-term businesses if they go down in price is that he cannot easily get out of a business he has billions invested in. Recall what he said in the 2004 letter to shareholders. Our huge positions add to the difficulty of our nimbly dancing in and out of holdings as valuations swing. If Mr. Buffett can't nimbly get in and out, how long does it take for other big guys? Amazingly, the average size of a trade on the New York Stock Exchange in 2005 was 345 shares. Source, Mohammed Hadi, tracking the number, Wall Street Journal, June 10, 2005. That's about $5,000. Not all that big, is it?
Can you imagine how long it takes to buy or sell two billion dollars when you do it in five thousand dollar chunks? That's four hundred thousand trades. Let's say I own ten million shares of XYZ company. At three hundred forty-five shares per sale, it's going to take me thirty thousand separate trades to get out. That could take weeks to execute without causing undue alarm in the market. But if I try to sell in a few big trades, other fund managers will see all the extra selling and they'll panic, start selling, and the price will drop so fast it could wipe out the profits I'm trying to hang on to by getting out in the first place. Reminder: the price of a stock isn't altered one penny by world events, higher earnings, firing a CEO, losing a patent, or anything else. Events themselves don't change the stock price. Institutional money moving into and out of the market in response to these events is what changes stock prices. Think of events that appear to affect stock prices as proximate causes, the signals that bring about change. None of these events matters in the short-run price of the stock because the only thing that changes the stock price today. Is what the institutional fund managers, as a whole, do. If they sell, the price goes down. Obviously, these proximate events can and do affect the decision by the institutional fund managers to buy or sell the stock. But in the end, the price of that stock goes up or down only because of increased or decreased institutional investing. FYI. Part of the reason the stock market has surged in the past 25 years is that fund managers, the movers and shakers of the institutional funds, through the 1980s and 1990s had more money coming in from retirement accounts than anyone in the history of the stock market had ever seen. The managers had to invest it in something. They poured in that 401k money, and stocks went up. Big surprise there. They went up. Because there was more money chasing stocks than ever before. Let me use an analogy so you can see the problem these big guys have. Imagine you're sitting in the middle of a packed theater. You smell smoke. Do you run for the exit or do you quietly make your way to the door? Obviously, if you start running and others smell smoke too, you could set off a panic and never get out. So you don't do that. You try walking quietly, taking as much time as you need to get to the door. But others smell smoke, and no matter that you're only walking, they get up and start walking too. As more and more people try to leave, the exits get jammed, and nobody gets out without being burned. That's exactly what happened with Enron. When it was priced at sixty dollars, there were about five hundred funds investing billions in it. Some fund managers started smelling smoke and headed for the door, quietly, in an orderly way, and the stock responded to this quiet selling by sliding slowly over the next four months from sixty dollars to thirty dollars. No panic, no gaps down, just steady, quiet selling, and all five hundred funds still had money in the stock. Although some had less than when it was at sixty dollars, but now there was a lot of money headed for the door.
and some of the fund managers started worrying they weren't going to get their funds all the way out, and the smell of something wrong was getting stronger. The selling became less quiet, and the stock price dropped in one month from $30 to $9. But there were still 500 funds invested because it was getting harder and harder to find big buyers for all those blocks of stock. And then there was a full-on stampede for the exit by all 500, and in one night the price dropped from $9 to $0, and no one got out whole. Now, there are still about 500 funds waiting for the bankruptcy court to sort through the burned building for any loose change. Tools So what do we do? We first recognize that we're not geniuses. We're river guides and homemakers and business managers and teachers and lawyers and candlestick makers. Second, we recognize that we're not big. We're little. We, unlike Mr. Buffett, have no trouble at all nimbly dancing in and out. We should exploit our size advantage. It takes a typical fund manager about 6 to 12 weeks to get fully invested in a stock or to get completely out. But how long does it take you and me to buy all of any business we want? About 8 seconds, and nothing happens to the price. And we can get out in 8 seconds too, without affecting the price. Considering that the price of a stock goes up because the fund managers buy in with massive amounts of money, and similarly the price of a stock goes down when they sell out, how cool would it be if we could see them moving the money? Then we could get right in front of them as they begin to make their moves. Think about that for a second. If they're going to take six weeks to quietly buy enough stock in this business, all the while driving the price up, what if we could see them doing that? Would that give us an advantage? The answer is yes. Ready for this? Geniuses actually built a set of tools that track the flow of money in and out of every stock, mutual fund, and index fund in the market. Those tools were built for the pros. Did you actually think anybody would bother to build such tools for the little guy with $5,000 to invest? Nobody even wants to be your broker if all you have is $5,000. But surprise, surprise, the Internet came along, and all of a sudden, we have access to professional tools, too. And here's the big shocker. You and I, the little guys, can use these tools far better than the big guys can. Ready to learn? I'm going to select three carefully chosen computer programs that watch every trade in the business we're interested in. These are what I call my three tools, but they aren't such a great secret. Almost every professional uses these tools in some form or another, if only to check out what's going on with his competition. They're available on almost every online broker's website for free. If your broker's site doesn't have them, you can find them on Yahoo Finance or MSN Money. What these tools do is tell everybody when the big guys are buying in or selling out of any business. That's because the big guys are more than 80% of the market. 
If they were only 15%, as they were back in the 1950s, this wouldn't be so effective. But since they control the market and move slowly compared to us, these tools give us plenty of advance warning when something is changing in the flow of money in or out of any rule number one stock. These tools are great for two reasons. One, they lower our risk of losing money. Two, they eliminate ERI. What the heck is ERI? It's my emotional rule of investing, which says, if you buy this business, immediately after you buy it, the price will go down, down, down. But if you don't buy it, the price will go up, up, up until you do buy it, at which time the price will then go down, down, down. Note, just as online insurance quotes and car buying guides like Edmunds.com have changed the world of insurance and car buying forever by giving us consumers, the little guys, insider knowledge about how much we should spend on insurance and a car, new or used, so too these investing tools have changed the way we make sense of the market, offering us an advantage we never had before. What these tools do is allow us to make smart decisions about our investments and get ahead of the game in many ways, even if we're up against an entire industry filled with self-serving experts. As Levitt and Dubner so eloquently state in their book Freakonomics, the raw power of information is enormous. Quote, Information is a beacon, a cudgel, an olive branch, a deterrent, depending on who wields it and how. Unquote. As a group, stockbrokers and fund managers previously derived their power mostly from hoarding information, keeping it from us or making us believe we couldn't understand it. God bless the Internet. Once that information fell through the Internet and into our hands, we suddenly had a few chips to play with and much of the financial pro's advantage had disappeared. As Levitt and Dubner put it, the Internet has vastly shrunk the gap between the experts and the public. That's good for us, and luckily it doesn't take a genius to understand how to use these tools either. You may have to download or register for advanced tools on MSN Money and Yahoo Finance. For example, at MSN, you must download, for free, its Advanced Investor's Toolbox, which is easy to do and gives you immediate access to more than just one type of tool. Once you've got MSN's deluxe investing tools working on your computer, when you click on Charts on the left-hand menu bar, you'll be able to pull up all of the three tools that I'll cover in the next chapter. At Yahoo!, the tools are also found under Charts on the left-hand menu. You may also need to create an ID and a password to maximize what you can see. This is all free. While on stage at the Cow Palace, the arena near San Francisco, I was talking about the institutional investors and the magic wand they could wave over the market. After explaining how they have more than 80% of the money in the market and therefore control the prices of all stocks, I asked the audience a rhetorical question. So who makes the market go down? The answer, of course, is that it takes big money to make a stock go down.
So it's the institutional investors who control the stock price. But a guy in the front row said, I do. Whatever I buy goes down. It must be me. This is ERI. We must get rid of ERI because we must be willing to invest when others are afraid. And we must be willing to sell when everyone is telling us it can't go down. In other words, as a general principle, rule number one investors buy when others are fearful and sell when others are greedy. If you get caught up in ERI, no matter how wonderful the business is, if you're a novice investor, heck, maybe even more so if you're an experienced investor, you're going to second-guess yourself and stay out when you should get in and get in when you should get out. The four M's all by themselves give us a checklist to follow that gets us a long way toward eliminating ERI. If we understand the business and can get it at a great price, we've eliminated all the rational excuses not to buy a given company. Now we just have to eliminate the irrational excuses, the emotional excuses, the ERI. And I do that with my three tools. In the next chapter, I'll show you how to use those tools to determine when to get in and when to get out. Or, in other words, when to grab the stick. Points to remember. 1. Big investors, the ones who control the pension funds, insurance funds, mutual funds, and so on, control the market but have to turn slowly like big cruise ships. Their movements are so huge that they're easy to see. 2. Little investors, you and I, can turn quickly like wave runners. Our movements are fast and small so that we're invisible. 3. Tools directly from the U.S. government or through a bank. Trend, a direction that's discerned by trading data. Watch list, a list of businesses that you don't own but may wish to buy. Rule number one investors use a watch list to track the MOS and the tools. Zacks a Chicago-based firm that provides institutional and individual investors with analytical tools and financial information. You're likely to find financial data through outlets such as Microsoft Money, Reuters, Quicken, and Bank of America, which originated from Zacks. This is Mark Cashman. We hope you've enjoyed this production of Rule Number 1, the simple strategy for successful investing in only 15 minutes a week by Phil Town. Published by arrangement with Random House Audio Publishing Group, a division of Random House Inc. Text copyright 2006 by Philip B. Town. Production copyright 2006. Books on tape. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.